where we're going to read the Scriptures just today uh, together. Um, we're going to turn just now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, so much that we could stop in on the story of David, but we're going to read these verses together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 1 to 17. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17. After the king, that's uh, David, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar with the ark, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, Tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Amen. We trust that God will bless his word to us. Well, if you have your Bibles, please do keep them open with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as Nigel said, we could have gone to so many different places in the Bible whenever we were thinking about King David, but we're going to try and root ourselves here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what I want us to think about is this. How do we follow God in the good, following God in the good times. We often hear about it in church. We, we, we read passages in the Bible about following God whenever things are going bad. And whenever things come into our life and things start to fall apart, we often run to God. It's the first person that we run to. Maybe we have something wrong with us and we, we, we automatically go to prayer. But what about the good times? Where is God in the good times? In our lives, do we make space for God in the good, or do we just reject Him really to be this 
sort of automatic uh, machine that we go to, almost like an ATM, that whenever things go bad, we, we go along, we punch in our pin, we pray, and then God gives us what we want. But in the good, well, we don't really need him. He's pushed the sidelines. A little example of this in my own life, I was thinking about it, and uh, I was thinking back to whenever uh, my dad decided to teach me how to use the ride-on lawnmower for our garden. And I wasn't very old, I don't know what age I was, and uh, someone had decided to put big hazards in the garden, known as flower beds, and it's not easy whenever you're a little boy trying to operate a a ride-on lawnmower. But anyhow, we started in first gear, and, and dad walked along beside me, you know, teaching me how to steer and all the rest, and it was fine. And then we would go up, you know, into second gear. That was fine. And, and I was going around. And I thought to myself, I didn't need that any longer. I didn't need his instructions. So I was going around the garden. And you know what, <laughs> where, where this is going. After a few minutes of going around the garden, being really confident in and of myself, straight into the flower bed and straight into one of the big bushes in the flower bed and a whole drama to try and get me off the lawnmower before it destroyed mum's flowers and plants and all the rest of it. What did I do? Things were going really well. I was learning how to drive this. I was going around and doing laps of the garden. Everything was well. And I took my eyes off my father, stopped listening to his instruction because I thought I had it. And then I quickly realized that I didn't. So where is God in the good times? I think that we live in a time of comfort. All of us here, we are relatively comfort comfortable. We are well-off people. And what we do is we insulate ourselves. We build little igloos for ourselves, Right? And we insulate these igloos with all of the stuff of life. And we make ourselves as comfortable as we possibly can. So we want to get the nicest things that we can afford. And that's good. It it is good. It's a good thing to do. But we insulate ourselves with money, with nice clothes, with mobile phones, with reliable and luxurious cars, with lots of food in our cupboards. We have gifts that people give to us. We give gifts. We go out and treat ourselves to coffee and to dinner and to takeaways. We have savings accounts. We have free health. We have state pension. And what we're really living our lives in is a state of abundance. We're always clearing out spring cleaning. We're always giving things away. So in this comfortable life that we live, how do we live for Jesus? How do we live for Jesus in the hard times, but also in the good times? Because that's where we spend a lot of our life. Well, as we pick up the Bible overview, and as we launch ourselves into 2 Samuel and chapter 7, what's going on in the history of Israel is they're about to hit the good time. Things have been really, really difficult for them. We've plotted this along the way, haven't we? So all, all things were good. There were God's people under God's rule in God's place at the very beginning, Adam and Eve. Then the fall happens and they are put out of God's place. They're no longer under God's rule. They're no longer God's people. And then God gives a promise, as we thought about last week to Abraham, that things will get better. But in the in-between, things go horribly wrong. Israel are taken to live in Egypt. It's awful for them. Then Moses leads them out. Then Joshua takes them into the promised land. And as Joshua dies, then the judges come. And the judges, well, that's an awful time in the history of Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of sin. And then they plead for a king. Lord, give us a king. And so Saul arrives. But Saul's not the king that they expected. And then we pick up the story here this morning with King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, we'll start to see how he comes and, and 
you can flick back with me to chapter 5, you see that he's appointed king of all of Israel. Is this the one? Is this the one that Genesis 3.15 talked about? The one that would crush the head of the serpent? The promised one that we've been looking forward to? Is this the one who will descend from the line of Judah, from, from whose grasp the scepter will not depart? In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, and verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. The good times are here. The people have come out from under the shadow of the judges, from under the shadow of Saul, and now here comes this king whose God's favor is upon. And what does he do? He makes, Israel, he makes Jerusalem the capital. He secures peace in the land. There's all of the enemies are, are, are defeated. And the ark, the ark of the covenant symbolizing God's presence is brought into the city. The good times have arrived. And it seems like all of these promises are being fulfilled. God's people are back in God's land, and they're under His rule. Surely things can't go wrong, can they? Surely it couldn't all fall apart this time. Surely this is the king that we have been waiting for. Genesis 3:15 complete. The promise that we had last week to Abraham in Genesis 12, then through into Jacob and Judah in Genesis 49. Do we feel the drama? Do we feel the weight of this building up and building up and building up? Here he is. Here's the one that would restore Eden. Here's the one who would succeed where Adam failed. And so with history upon his shoulders and with the weight of prophecy upon his shoulders, David takes the throne. But the question is, is this it? It all seemed so good. But we know that it wasn't. The Bible doesn't end in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We know that this king would fail. We know that this king would throw it all away. We know that this king wouldn't be the one that would satisfy the hunger and the thirst of the people. So what goes wrong? Well, I want us to see this. In kingly success, we must be killing sin. In kingly success, we must be killing sin. So I want us to think about success and sin, how these two things go together. Each of us, in, in one way or another, think of ourselves as this little king or little queen. We have success. We build these little igloos or kingdoms for ourselves. We pad it out with all of the things that we want in our little kingdom. But in kingly success, we must be killing sin. There are many stories, aren't there, of people who rise and then fall. I was Googling this week, and here are some of the great failures, I guess, of the modern age. Michael Jackson, for all that he earned, whenever he passed away, he was 400 million in debt. Mike Tyson, he earned over 300 million during his career, but in 2003, he was 23 million pounds in debt. Or perhaps you've heard of this guy called Bill Hoang. Well, Bill he has been described as the individual who has lost the most money so quickly. He lost 20 billion this year in two days. 20 billion in two days on Wall Street. Stories of great success, 
followed by failure. And it's not just money that comes and goes. We know this. People fail morally. We lose, people lose family and friends and businesses and reputation. He had it all or she had it all, and now they have nothing. What went wrong? Well, we've got to see this. Success, success is the fertilizer for sin in our hearts. As we succeed, well, then sin finds it really easy to grow. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and look at verse 8. See what the Lord's trying to teach David here at this moment? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over the people of Israel. I took you. It was the Lord that takes. It is the Lord that gives. It is the Lord that has given us everything that we own here today. James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift comes from God. And so as we are successful, as, as things seem to go well in our lives, as we build these little kingdoms for ourselves, what do we do? Well, we don't dwell in our own success, but we've got to look back to the hand that gave it. So things are going well. We think that we have it easy. We're successful. We're comfortable. And in that, what do we do? Well, we glorify ourselves. We thank ourselves. We think it's all down to us that we deserve the praise and glory, that it's me, myself, and I. Well, Luke chapter 12 and verse 19, we'll know this parable. We've looked at it. The farmer says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But in verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And so as we look at King David, we're, we're seeing all of the good. This is the beginning of the golden era for Israel. But we know that within a few chapters, he's going to fall. And he's going to fall because he doesn't realize this, that in kingly success, he needs to be killing sin. And so in our lives, as we experience success, we have to kill sin. We can't let it fester and grow. Because success makes us selfish. It makes us puffed up with pride. And ultimately, it diverts our eyes off God. In our age, we have it so good. And so the comfort riddles the church. Our desire to be comfortable. Our desire to have nice things, to live in luxury. And so what do we do? Well, we build these little bunkers where we fill them with lots of stuff. And then what we think to ourselves is this. We have done really well. The Lord's blessed us. So what can we do? Well, we can have a little bit of sin. We can indulge in it. And as a church, as, as Christianity in the West, we think sacrifice is not part of our language, and humility is not part of our character. But whenever we replace God's rule with our success, whenever we take our eyes onto ourselves, then we start to see the sin of our hearts. And we're so comfortable. Christianity in the West is so comfortable. And we're in a state of contentment. And I think this is dangerous for us. Whenever we reach a state of contentment, we should be content in our justification, but never in our sanctification, in our process of being made holy. 
and never content in our evangelism. There's always more people to hear the good news of the gospel. And so the question remains, how do we follow God in the good? Whenever things are going really well, how do we follow him? Well, John Bloom says this. He says, we are never more vulnerable to sin than whenever we achieve success, whenever we are admired by others, whenever we are prosperous, as King David tragically discovered. So in 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, we see it here in the passage, the king was in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. Verse 2, he dwelt in a house of cedar. It was almost like Eden was restored. Verse 9, I have been with you, I have protected you, I will make your name great, I will appoint a place for my people, I will plant them, I will dwell with them. Verse 13, I will establish your throne forever. The prosperity continues. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 6. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verse 14, the refrain is repeated. Good times never seem so good. And yet by chapter 11, if you flip forward, what does he do? Chapter 11 of David's life here. He strolls around his palace it's late in the afternoon, in the cool of success, he gets up from his afternoon nap, from his comfortable couch, and he looks at Bathsheba, and he falls into sin. Do we see the strands coming together? Success, comfort, contentment makes your heart fertile ground for sin to grow. And so from chapter 12 forward, it all disintegrates for David. Adultery, murder, death, discord, it all goes horribly wrong. But whenever David was being chased earlier in his life by Saul, he relied upon God. God was everything. He, he, he walked so closely with God. But see now, whenever the promise has been kept, whenever everything is flourishing, whenever everything's going well, whenever the, Israel had never been so spiritually alive, whenever they're, they're so politically stable, they're so wealthy, they're so militarily strong, it all falls apart. And so at the peak of this unprecedented prosperity, David commits a heinous sin. Why? Why does he do it? Why does anyone do it? Why does anyone sin in this moment of their life whenever the good times are good? Well, it's because the poisonous weed of self-worship grows around our hearts. You see, David, the lowly shepherd, who is now the great King David, he doesn't keep his eyes on God. And so, again, John Bloom says this, seasons of success can be our most perilous because we are so easily deceived into thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We are self-exalting. Pride is what leads us to usurp God's rightful rule. And so the warning for us as a church, as followers of Jesus, how do we follow him in the good? Well, we need to be aware that in our contentment, in our comfort, in our success, that we've got to be killing sin. We've got to keep our eyes open for sin. Where is it bubbling up in our lives? And whenever everything seems to be going so good, we can think, well, God's blessing me. 
Everything's going well in my life. Surely, even with this little bit of sin that I'm tolerating, everything's still good. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, he sins against the Lord, but what happens to him every day? He gets more cows and he gets more sheep and more flocks and more herds. And all it is doing is compounding him in his sin. Just because we prosper doesn't mean that we are perfect. And so in our comfort and in all of the success around us, we do not indulge sin, but we kill sin. Just because God is blessing us doesn't mean that we can excuse it. Oh, it's just a little text. It's just a little text to someone who has a husband or a wife. It's just a little flirt with someone who isn't a Christian. It's just a little bit of tax evasion. It's just a little bit of time that I won't work, but no one will know. It's just a little indulgence on the computer late at night. It's just a one-off. Never, ever mistake earthly prosperity for God's blessing upon us. And so as we have success, we've got to kill sin. And this is our call this morning. It's to wake up from this comfortable sleep, this comfortable Christianity that we enjoy, and to see what it's like to actually follow Jesus in the good. To follow Jesus in the good means that we are obedient. We're obedient to our King. And we do not set ourselves up as kings or queens, but instead we submit to His humble rule. And so in David, what do we see? We see that he isn't the chosen one, that he falls just like the first Adam fell. He makes the same mistake. His eyes, he desires something with his eyes. He goes and he takes it, and he falls again. This is not the king that Israel needed. It's not the king that they desired. He falls short. He does not rule, and he does not reign in the way he should. He had taken his eyes off God. He had served himself. This is not the king that would crush the head of the serpent. And therefore, as good as David was, and he was good, he was blessed by the Lord, he walked with the Lord, he was close to the Lord, he still falls short, he messes up. So where do we go? Well, as we close this morning, where do we go from here? Well, it's true that we've all failed to be the king or the queen that we should be. We've all failed to be obedient under God's rule and God's reign. And so there is one king that we need. Look at verses 12 through 18. God brings this word to the prophet Nathan, and he's telling telling King David about what he's going to be and what it's going to be like. But do you notice that in verses 12 through 18, even at this moment, whenever everything is so good, verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. See the subtle undertone? Something's going to go wrong. We're prepared for it right at this moment. There's going to have to be someone else that's going to come from your line. There's going to be a different king, a better king than you. And God's sowing it here sowing it into this narrative right from the beginning, right from his, the beginning of his reign. And so this made me think a little bit about uh, a line from a film from The Dark Knight, uh, from a Batman film. Whenever James Gordon uh, says this, he says about Batman that he's, 
Not the hero we deserve, but the hero that we need. Not the hero we deserve, but the hero we, that we need. To translate that into Christian terms, who is Jesus? Jesus is the king that we do not deserve, but he is the king that we all need. The king that we do not deserve, but the king that we will all need. He's the king that's going to come here, that, that God is talking about, that the Lord is talking about here in verses 12 through 18. The one who will come and will, his kingdom will be established forever. He's the one that will build the house, the church, and will gather people to himself. His throne will be established. He will be what the Lord says here. He will be a son to me, and I will be his father, and my steadfast love will not depart from him. This is the king that the children of Israel longed for. They hungered and they thirsted for this king, the one who would restore Eden, who would crush the serpent's head and all of their enemies, the one who would rule and who would reign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 14, the one who would commit no iniquity. And so our hearts this morning, who do we need? Who do we need to rule us? We don't need Jeremy Clarkson to rule us or Scooby-Doo as we thought about with the boys and girls. Who do we need? We don't need ourselves. We know our sinful hearts. We know how far, fall, how far short we fall. Who do we need? We need a greater king. And we won't find it in government or rulers. Who do we need? We need King Jesus. Because this morning our hearts have been exposed as we see the sin of our hearts, as we have success in our lives, as we pad all of these things into our lives. And so in many ways, we need to get up off the couch of our own comfort. And we need to disregard ourselves. We need to kill sin, and we need to live for Jesus. So as we close here this morning, our call has to be this. Our call has to be that we need to live under the rule of the perfect king, to live under King Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, in our comfort, in our success, we honor him first. We glorify him. We see that every good gift comes from him. We do not build our own kingdoms, but we live to extend his kingdom. The one who in verse 14 of this passage, there's an allusion to it, that by his stripes we would be healed. We need to live for the one who would succeed where the first Adam fell, where David fell. And so this king is Jesus. And you say to me this morning, John, I've got lots of weapons of rebellion that I'm fighting Jesus off with. I'm saying to him, not yet. No, get away from me. We're batting them away. What do we need to do? Well, we need to stop running away from Jesus and we need to lay down our lives and live under his rule. This king doesn't live to punish you. Instead, this king says there is a royal pardon for all who have done wrong. You deserve death, but instead, I have died in your place. And this king says you can come and be part of my kingdom forever. Your enemies are defeated. There's rest, verse 1, to be enjoyed. There's a family to be part of. There's a table to sit at. There's a new citizenship for you. There's an inheritance with your name 
And so what does this king say? And it'll come up for us in the slide. This king says that the gates to his kingdom are open and the arms of this king are spread wide. This is the king that we need. This is the king that we need to be obedient to. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you don't know this king, his gates are open. And he doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to pardon you. He wants to bring you right into his family. His arms are spread wide open. And he says, come. You can search for every king on this planet. You can try and be the best king yourself, but it will never work. I am the only king. I am the good king. Come, follow me, and be part of my family and part of my kingdom forever. Won't we come? Won't we all come and worship the King of kings this morning and the Lord of lords? Amen. Nigel, Nigel will lead us in prayer. Let's take a moment just to pause to consider what we've heard, to think how God's Word applies to us, what it means in terms of our hearts, our practices, our ambitions, our loving God and Heavenly Father, we recognize the patterns of David in our own lives. We see that when our lives are comfortable, we often take your blessings as license to go our own way. Lord, help us to be rather busy killing sin, and help us to gladly and wholeheartedly live under the rule of your perfect King Jesus. Or we take a moment today to pray for others, to pray for the needs that we know are all around us and within us. And we pray at the moment for healthcare workers who are under severe pressure, sometimes because of staff shortages. We pray that you will keep people well, you'll help them to effectively treat those who are in need. We pray for those who have responsibility to organize businesses and supply chains who are trying to make things work with staff isolating and people not available because of holiday seasons. We continue to pray, Lord, for wisdom for governments and for authorities as they navigate through these next weeks. Lord, in the midst of all of this uncertainty, we pray that you would be growing your church. Some of our young people have been and are involved in various teams at the moment, and we pray for fruit for their labor. As the seed of your word is scattered, we pray that it will find a resting place in good soil in many lives and produce a lasting harvest. Lord, we dare to pray that there'll be people whose eternal destiny is changed because of these days. 
And Lord, we pray for ourselves. You know our needs. Some of us, Lord, are living through days of bereavement, and it's a struggle. Some of us, Lord, are, are living through situations of illness. Some, Lord, facing circumstances of sin, of strife, of uncertainty. Lord, we need your help. We know that within us the resources are just not there, so we need help from outside ourselves. But we thank you that you are the God that gladly gives to us, who delights to be called and treated as our helper. So, Lord, be this to us, we pray, and keep us in your love, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.